welcome everyone to uh, the guild the podcast of uh the writers artists and readers guild this is uh chris mary hoffman your host and today we are going to have our fir- very first round table and it's going to be horror centric and what better way to to kick it off than with the master himself mr stephen king uh, with me i am joined by three very credible horror authors uh darius pilgrim welcome to the show hi thank you for having me appreciate it chris um and drew starling welcome back to the uh show i should say <laughs> thank you it's good to be back and ross tyson welcome to the show hey that's i'm happy to be here <laughs> <laughs> good uh how are you guys doing in these uh trying times uh, we're getting by with the help of uh our friend stephen king here <laughs> <laughs> i'm reading the stand in preparation <laughs> I've been glancing through that as well. Yeah, I, I, it's going all right. Yeah, stir crazy, but hey. Yeah, I just spoke to a friend actually. Uh, just now, got off. The, he's in um, he's in California. He's in Cupertino. Actually, he works for Apple, and and I think they're going on five weeks being home now. So they're going definitely going stir, stir crazy. Wow. I'm lucky yeah, enough it's... that I can go outside, <laughs> go to the store. So. Uh... Oh, this is like great talking to other people. Right? <laughs> I'm a real person again. I haven't seen like a normal days. activity. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we're gonna, today we're going to talk about Stephen King, our first round table, and I uh, I should probably say that we're not going to ta- say like we're not talking about whether or not Stephen King is supposed to be put on a pedestal. We're not, and obviously we're all going to have different views and different opinions about Stephen King. Uh, I think at least we'll see uh, where where this takes us. Um, but first of all, and I think I'll, I'll start how we came in contact with Stephen King. For me, um, I grew up uh, in Europe, in Sweden, where I now currently reside. Uh, shel- very sheltered, I've understood, from, from horror. And, and I've understood that authors today, horror authors today, are um, basically influenced by two things. Uh, goosebumps or Stephen King. <laughs> Uh, that's what I've come to learn. So, and Goosebumps yeah. wasn't available here because you shelter in Sweden. You shelter kids from horror. Sex is okay, but horror not so much. So, my first introduction to Stephen King was actually fine because I've always heard my friends would always talk about Stephen King, and a lot of them read uh, it at an early age, which here came out in a two-volume series. Um, but I actually the first book that I read was uh, Dead Zone. Which in, in in many ways isn't really a traditional horror. So, um, so I have uh, I don't have a, and after that I read something some stuff here and there. So I I don't have that great of a relationship with Stephen King. I've often s- looked at at other horror authors, Dean Koontz, uh, which I also understand is not a very re- as respected of a horror author. But uh, that's my relation with Stephen King. Darius, where um, when did you discover Stephen King? Yeah, uh, well, actually, kind of uh, similar, um, maybe sheltered uh, in a different way, but I, I come from a pretty religious family, so uh, horror uh, was, you know, not on the uh, on the table at all. It was a lot of uh, Christian rock music, not even the radio, that sort of thing, but um, I guess I, I had a bit of a rebellious streak that uh, it persists to this day, 
Um, so basically anything my parents told me by the time I was about 12, uh, that became really attractive to me, <laughs> something that I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up uh, discovering I could go to the public library and get a library card. And then my parents couldn't stop me or control what I was reading or, you know, having access to. Um, so the first book by Stephen King that I got, I, I was really attracted to the cover. I was just walking through and uh, it was The Stand, um, the cover that I showed you guys the picture of that has the, the, the guy in white fighting against the uh, bird looking creature. Mm -hmm. um, I picked that up and I hid it in my backpack. And at night after it lights out, I would uh, have a flashlight under a blanket in my bedroom and I would start reading that. Maybe not the best reading material right before sleep for a 12 year old, but uh, I was hooked. I, I, I was I was hooked right from the beginning. I blasted through that in like a, a couple weeks. Went on to Pet Cemetery, and then from there, uh, my my Stephen King love just grew. Mm -hmm. uh, Ross, what would you say is your um, your relationship to to Mr. King, and when you first discovered him? Um, so I, I'm like the polar opposite of you guys. Uh, I I was not sheltered from horror at all. Um, my mom actually encouraged it. She she <laughs> okay. sat me down when I was like five years old and was like, "Oh, Friday the Thirteenth is on. Let's watch this." <laughs> um, but no, uh, the first I think my first exposure was the, the actual mini series of it that they made back in the nineties, um, and I remember being absolutely terrified of uh tim curry's pennywise oh yeah not even just like the regular clown part it was the part in the beginning where he like grew the teeth and ripped off georgie's arm and i was like <laughs> nope this is enough <laughs> um but then as far as books i kind of went from there uh the first uh book that i actually picked of his was the the novella release of the mist mm. um because i just seen the movie and i was like oh my god this is amazing i was like 13 years old and then I read the actual book, and I was like, "What the hell? This ends completely different." <laughs> so, it was uh, it, it just grew from there. I moved on to you know, it, The Shining, um, the Tommy Knockers, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> and a, a ton of others. And it, it's still, still finding ones I haven't read to this day and devouring them. Yeah, and uh, Drew, what uh, what was your first Stephen King? I think you might have actually talked about it on the on your solo podcast, but uh, let's hear it again. I think I'm somewhere in the middle between Ross and Darius, and um, wasn't sheltered, wasn't actively exposed to anything, but sort of was allowed to explore whatever I wanted. And so, so I got really, really into the X Files in the early '90s, oh, yeah. uh, in the mid '90s. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and. Um, Stephen King was sort of like, even at the, as a kid, I felt like, oh, that's very adultish stuff. Like that, I didn't really go near it until I um, was a camp counselor in Colorado, where there wasn't a lot to do on these long camping trips, and they had this library, and I brought a Stephen King book with me. It, and I was probably nineteen or twenty by this point, so you know, it wasn't like a little child. Um, and I had that book, and it, I, I, I didn't know words in a page in a book were capable of eliciting such fear mm. within me or within anybody. Um, I had this tendency at the time to just jump to the end of books. I still sometimes do this and read the ending first and then go back. <laughs> um, and I read uh, the part about the spider, and I wasn't even scared of spiders, but 
the spider and the hugeness of it and the way they fought it and the whole the whole scene there, the way the end unfolds, really just I'll never forget it. I, it was like I know I'll never forget where I was. I was sitting under this pavilion and you know it was um I guess a life changing literary moment, but um yeah, that was it. Mm. Literally it. <laughs> it was it. <laughs> And I think a lot of people. I think I think yeah, I'm just going to go out on a limb, but I'm I'm thinking that most people's uh, first contact with Stephen King is it, maybe because of the clown. Because I remember vividly seeing that cover. Because as I said, around here, it came in in two volumes: it one and it two, uh, basically just like how they do the movies. And it was a scary clown uh, on the cover. Um, but I think probably drawn by somebody who hadn't actually read the book because it didn't look anything like they described it in the book but um did you read it in in english for the first time or in your native language well well english is actually my native language oh okay Uh, i'm sorry but i did that and that's fine Uh, i did read it in in swedish first um and i i think and part probably part of the disconnect for, for me because I'd like to to hook on to what Drew was talking about the writing style you know how it jumps off the page because as I said I wrote I read um, Dead Zone first um, then I think I read it uh, book number one I would say um, and then I think probably years later I read Eyes of the Dragon so my relationship my first three Stephen King books are books that well, I mean, it is scary, but I don't think it is as, I mean, the It Part 2, in at least the Swedish version, is a lot where all the scary things happen. Um, so, so, when you say it was split into two parts, I'm just curious, did it actually like split it completely down? in the middle of the book, or did it split it like between the kid and the adult parts like the movies did? Yeah. I want. I don't remember actually. Uh, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't split it like that because it does. It keeps that chrono- uh, chronological order. Because I remember, uh, he commits suicide in the bathtub in the first book. Because I remember that because they ke- kept that his writing on the page. You know that kind of illustration where it just says oh. it. So I feel like that's like the most effective part is that it's doing these parallels between the kids and the adults. Mm-hmm. So. I, I feel like you kind of lose something if it's not done that way, like how the movies did. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it, it lost a bit of that mm-hmm. and storytelling. I, yeah, definitely. And I don't, because I, I don't remember where first the first part ends, actually, because I, as I remember, the books are were just as thick. So I think they just cut it in half. Um, oh, awful. Yeah, I know. And, and they, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it is awful. And they did that with the Robert Jordan books, too. Every single Robert Jordan, if you've read the, or know The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan, every single book is split in two. So there's twice as many books in Sweden. Yeah, it's odd. It's, very it's like double the production cost, too, right? Like, <laughs> it must be. Why would you make a hardcover book two times over for the same story? I'm, I'm not a so you have to pay twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, maybe maybe that's why. The Swedish no, cover markup. The Swedish publishers were on to something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I think the uh, the the writing style. And I was reading a, an essay about Stephen King from a Swedish magazine where they, because Stephen King was for many when he came when he when he arrived on the scene was a very new way of telling a story at least in 
for, for a Swedish public where he has those, those parallel stories, a parallel development of characters. Um, if the, the, chrono, the chronology is broken, just like uh, how it is in, in it. Um, is that something that you often think about when you guys have uh, read King, the way he kind of masters the parallel storytelling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially in, you know, other series, like um, uh, The Dark Tower is, it has all kinds of flashbacks. Um, was that oh, yeah, one? that one especially. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. Um, and all the connections to the other novels, too. It just makes you want yeah. to keep reading more when you hear about it. Oh, this is from another book? Well, i got to read that book. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think. I, I completely lost the book I was going to talk about in regards to this. <laughs> um, I'll circle back. <laughs> but um, what, yeah. what, you were, what you were speaking to oh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it almost reminds me, too, of some of my favorite – for people that maybe haven't read a lot of Stephen King – some of my favorite serial TV shows, like True Detective, for instance, and these sort of noir horror things where I've seen this style of TV emerge where every little thing matters at some point. You just don't know when. So they, they'll introduce some character that seems random and save him. Like I thought Stephen King did an amazing job of this in The Outsider, that in the book, The Outsider, mm -hmm. um, when you know in the middle of the book he introduces uh, – five or six characters within the span of like a paragraph because the main character consumes them all at once. I saw that guy. I saw this guy. I saw this guy with a yellow bandana wrapped around his face. And the way the flash introduction of that nugget just gets stuck in the main character's brain. What about that guy? And then it builds. What about, what about, and I, I just think it's absolutely masterful and he, he's better than anybody at that. Yeah, he's really good at Trimming anything that's unnecessary. Like I think in his on writing book, he he says, you know, if there's a, a gun on the wall that you describe, that better come back sometime in, in the story. And he and it totally. always does for him. You know, it might oh, be yeah. just a, a passing reference that you don't even notice totally. the first time you're reading it, and then it comes back and it's a big They're part the best of the ones. Yeah. I think yeah, I just love that. I think it's Anton Chekhov that coined that phrase when he was talking about writing a play. <laughs> If you introduce, yeah, think, if you introduce a gun right. in the first act, it better go off in the final act. Right. Yeah, I think he's totally. quoting quoting him. Um, well, I, I really like too, like what you're getting at as as bringing a a new style. At least to me, as starting to read, I was really used to reading books where you know who the good guy is and you know who the bad guy is, and you put yourself in the shoes of the hero and you go through the story and you know and then yeah. you win at the end. Whereas as his characters are always, they're, they're flawed, you know, they, they usually have a traumatic past or um, they have subdued memories like, um, that, you know, they can't quite remember and they'll give you hints at it. And I think a lot of people really relate, relate to that um, because, you know, none of us are always the good guy. None of us are always the bad guy. It's kind of a, a gray in between. And, and that helps me relate to the characters a lot when I'm reading King. And speaking of that, um, you know, you say what that usually you're used to putting yourself in the shoes of the hero and just following them throughout the whole story. A lot of the time what he does is, you know, you start out following somebody and they end up becoming a part of the antagonist. The Shining. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Shining. Um, Salem's Lot followed a ton of the, you know, just random townspeople and that suddenly like, oh shit, they're a vampire. Sorry, right. Chris, I, <laughs> I don't know your stance on language on here. That's, um, that's fine. <laughs> but, Okay. Um, 
but you know, you're you're following all these citizens of Salem's Lot, and you're just like, okay, this person seems like they're you know a, a decent person. They're just doing their job, and then the next time you see them, they're trying to kill somebody. Um, yeah. Yeah. And or, I, yeah. Continue. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, continue. Oh, uh, I was gonna say, or um, it, you know, The Shining was the big one, and The Stand. Half of The Stand is following Randall Flagg. I mean, right. It, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. The, what I was gonna say is that. And I think I can't remember who I was talking to about this, if it was uh, Adam Davis or, or whoever it was. But the the, the thing with, with um, my stance on Stephen King is that oftentimes the backstories, and I, uh, you guys were hinting at this, the backstories of the characters are oftentimes more horrific than what actually happens in the story. I'm just thinking of you. Sure, Pet Cemetery. Some gruesome things happen, but I often find I when I read the book, I found that the relationship between the mother and her sister was mm. more horrific. Zelda. Yeah. yeah oh my the, god. Than than the actual events. Oh, that remember Zelda from the eighties? That that the way they depicted her, that thing yeah. gave me nightmares. Was, you mean the creepiest child on film ever? <laughs> yeah. Oh. And that was—I remember that from the the the, the preview of uh, of the movie when the first movie, the old movie that that who is this character that all of a sudden jumps out of bed, um, mm-hmm. and that was really that stuck. I think that still sticks with me. That image mm-hmm. of her sitting up in bed, uh, as compared to the the newer movie, which is also scary. <sighs> that part is also creepy. Um, I actually just just read Doctor Sleep for the first time, and that you could argue the entire premise of that novel is based on that concept. Mm-hmm. He's he's just trying to fight demons from his father and years ago, and really that's the main plot line. And the sort of active action is is a subplot in, in a way. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's like a uh, in Gerald's game. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if y'all have read that one or even seen the the movie. Um, the movie's fantastic yeah, if you have. the movie. Um, but there's that whole backplot of her story yeah. of what happened, and it oh my god, it's more horrifying than the situation she's in. <laughs> um, You're talking about with the eclipse yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the rest of the movie, I think nothing made me actually like. Yeah, yeah, as much in that movie, other than the getting out of the handcuffs. So God, um, <laughs> but no, that oh God, it made my skin crawl. Yeah, whoever that actor was, I don't remember who played her father. Did a really good job. I don't. I don't. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen it, but now I'm gonna have to. Um, my <laughs> my wife and I kind of when we started started dating horror movies it was like the only thing we ever watched we ever whenever we went to movies i think we went to see titanic once because basically that's what you had you were supposed to do and the rest were just horror movies and she far less uh, sheltered life than than i when it comes to that part and and i I just want to bring up a book you're talking about like dr sleep being a good example of this whole backstory um playing a big big part in being horrific and i'm just thinking because i read needful things um when i was young and i think that was i think that got me too it's kind of like stephen king is almost like the master of this kind of karmic uh, backdrop 
these these old sins are what mm-hmm. in the end actually destroys you. Cars a wheel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, it's so that's so clear in in that book compared to others. Yeah, I think he has a really good grasp on the you know what goes around comes around. Um, especially, I feel like every antagonist character gets like the they finally get this terrible death. Um, eventually, after you're finally just like, oh god, they're finally dead. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Like Henry Bowers and it. Oh my god. They, they finally just killed him, and I was just like, oh my god, this is beautiful. It's about damn time. Um, Harold in the stand. <sighs> oh, that's a good one. Yep, on the, on the motorcycle. Yeah, it, but there's like so much just amazing little karmic justice, poetic justice moments um, that are filtered throughout all of his books that give you that sense of like, okay, everything's not so horrible because these people are getting what comes around. Would you say, because the typical noir setting is that, you know, it's shit today and then shit tomorrow. It doesn't matter if things, you know, because the classic crime like Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes, uh, everything is fine and dandy. Crime happens. The world is broken. Sherlock Holmes or whoever it is solves a crime. The world goes back to normal. Uh, whereas the noir style of the 20s and 30s, Mickey Spillane, life is shit. Crime happens, it's solved, but life is still shit afterwards. Um, do you find that Stephen King kind of goes back to a status quo, or are things still broken afterwards in the world, just a little bit darker? Um, I personally, it, I keep thinking of the uh, you know, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown mm-hmm. line, um, because no matter what happens in all these situations, all that. The, the supernatural, the evil, it's all kind of still there at the end. It, it may be, like, suppressed for a while, but they know it's going to come back. Um, like, I mean, in it, supposedly, you know, Pennywise is gone. Um, but then there's, like, Salem's Lot, where after all that time, the town is still standing. Yeah, right. Randall Flagg reappears on that Polynesian island <laughs> at the very, very end of the stand, and the whole thing starts Randall over. Flagg is... Randall Flagg is the cockroach that survives everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking about Dead Zone. Because in the Dead Zone, he, if I remember correctly, and it's been years, and I didn't even see the movie with Christopher Walken, right? It was that mm-hmm. game. Because uh, he kind of has to sacrifice himself in order for the whole thing to, to go back to a status quo. Uh, am I remembering that correctly? That he's kind of like, he's, uh, he's the thing that is odd in the world, and he kind of has to sacrifice himself for the world to go back to normal. I believe so, yeah. It, it's been probably 15 years since I read Dead Zone. It might not be one of his more popular books, but in Christine, it's the same. Christine kind of is the... And even you can argue that with yeah. Pennywise and It, because nobody else in the world really knows what's going on, so they, they, they kill um, mm-hmm. Pennywise, and then the world kind of goes back to the way it was. Yeah. And I, there is that little... You know, uh, like at the end of it, they do say that the, the town of Derry itself kind of was lighter at the end. That mm. everybody was a little bit but less not by antagonistic. Much. Yeah. No, not by much. 
Derry was still a terrible place to live. <laughs> like the worst place in the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, it even has uh, in eleven twenty two sixty three when uh, uh, Jake goes to Derry, and there's that nice little nod where he meets uh, Bev and Richie. Um, but even he, after the events of Pennywise and everything, goes back and says, you know, there's something evil about this place, and I can't quite place it. So it, it's still there, obviously. It's just suppressed. Mm. It's kind of like Arkham for for Lovecraft, really. It's just like an, yeah. an, an evil place, an ancient evil, I think. Yeah. But what I kind of want to hint, get to with with this discussion is that one of the recurring criticisms of Stephen King, and I, I mean, I hear it a lot around here, uh, people are less tolerant of genre fiction in, in this part of of the world um, than I think in the states. But what they what they criticize is his inability to craft an ending. You know, he's very good at the whole thing, building it up, and then there's just like the uh, the climax is more of an anti climax than anything else. Would you guys agree with that? That's a pretty common criticism. Um, I would say I don't think that's localized. Yeah, that that's that's one of his uh, reoccurring criticisms. Um, and I, I totally get that. Uh, but for me with Stephen King, at least, um, uh, when I'm reading it, you know, I'm, I'm all about the story over the style. Like it's all about the journey for me. And I think, uh, I think Stephen would, would agree that, that story is boss, right? That's what he keeps saying in, in on writing story is boss, story is boss. Um, and you know, like the, just like a road trip, the ending can be disappointed, but it's the journey that matters. I know that sounds cliche, but um, to me, that that's how I see it for Stephen for Stephen King. You know, it, like when I think back on on the times I've spent reading his books, I never really think about the ending. I'm thinking about um, you know the experiences I had with these characters and, and the journey along the way, and that to me is worth the price of admission right there. Mm. Ross, yeah. Drew, do you have? Uh, no, I was just going to throw it to you. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I meant to throw it to you. So, sure. <laughs> Drew, go oh, ahead. Okay. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think that my bigger criticism is um, he just takes too long to get there sometimes. And I, Dr. Sleep, I actually, it was about 500 pages, the version I have. And I read about 300 and then, frankly, just skipped to the last 50. Um <laughs> And I find myself doing that every now and then with him, and um, I felt a little bit let down by the ending of The Outsider in the novel because I thought that he had built it up, and maybe that's his problem is he just builds it up so wonderfully that it's really difficult to put that climax on it. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I, I wasn't disappointed with the ending in It. I, just, I wasn't disappointed in the ending in Pet Cemetery and a bunch of others, but I think for me the bigger problem is he sometimes just takes too long to get there, and he can lose people that aren't really in, invested, which mm. anybody can. But I think it can. He, some of his books, as you guys know, are like thicker than the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. So, you know, that's true. Ross, do you have uh, you have a different opinion at all? Um, for the. I, I kind of agree with both, uh, both Drew and Darius here. Um, you know, it, a lot of it is about the characters because he does so, such a fantastic job of crafting these characters that like, you know, you, you absolutely love, but you also see the flaws with, um, and seeing their journey 
and growth is the big part of it. Um, one of my favorite examples of uh, his character growth is, uh, again, going back to Jake from 112263. Um, you know, he was this unfulfilled high school teacher um, who just got divorced, you know, didn't have anything. And then by the end, he's like, you know, all this that I've been through, I finally see that everything could be worse. I, I love my life. <laughs> um, and, but then there, there is the ending criticism of, uh, you know, he can either take too long to get there or it can have an ending that kind of just fizzles out instead of goes out with a bang. Um, and the, the biggest example of the fizzle out will forever be the mist because, you know, I, I read it after yeah. watching the movie and after watching the movie, the book's ending is just like, that's it. It's so open-ended. Yeah. The movie um, nailed the ending on that one. I will oh say. God. Um, I noticed, um, traumatizing. I, I don't know if any of you guys know this about Kings. It's sort of King, but if you guys ever read the novel heart shaped box by Joe Hill, who's Stephen King's son, yeah. obviously, the very it was the very first novel he wrote, and I noticed he did this thing with the ending that almost seemed like a deliberate way to counter that, but didn't quite pull it off. Where he just basically like there's an epilogue with two police officers and a coroner, just going over the details. Oh, yeah, that's what must have happened, and then that happened, and then that happened, and I, I always that that kind of jarred me a little bit because I wondered if he had been hearing some of that criticism of his father and tried to do it in his own way. And I, I, I I give him props for trying, but it didn't quite work. So it's almost like a slap in the face as, as a reader, like, you don't think I'm smart enough to figure it out myself. You got to spell it out for me. Yeah. Well, I find that I found the same with Nosferatu, I think. Because I think mm-hmm. Nosferatu had a very interesting premise and everything I read about it and stuff like that. But once I started reading it and I got to like, I think halfway through, I just like now I got like fatigued by it somehow. Um, so I never ended, actually ended up, but I just like, I, I, there's no way you can end this in a satisfactory way. So. Yeah, there, there's definitely some of those where you just kind of write yourself into a corner and yeah, you think like, oh, this is, you know, a completely awesome journey that I'm writing. And then you get to the end and you're like, uh... <laughs> and it's hard. Yeah. I was going to ask for you guys, uh, do you, like, write an end? Do you know your ending when you start writing? Or do you just kind of get there as you go along? I never do, usually. Same here. I write everything by the seat of my pants. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So same here. Yeah. No, so. I think so. I think so too. I, sometimes I can have an image, an ending image. This is where I want to get to, but very rarely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that was one of the things that I really liked about um, King too, is his example. And then he talks about it a lot on, on writing. Is when I first started writing, I would just be so obsessed about planning and making mm-hmm. timelines and you know structure, and I would get so far into that that i'd never actually start writing yeah um he he basically says idiot like if you're not a writer unless you write like sit down and do it you're not doing anything unless you're doing it sit down and write it and let the chips call where they may you get a second draft later on you can fix it later on but you're not doing anything if you're not writing sit down and write you know Mm -hmm. that like that was a eye-opener to me totally 
No, yeah, I agree. And I, it's interesting because I, I just finished off and submitted a, a story for um, the It Calls from the Sky anthology from Erie River. And I, I felt that I had built up a world that I just kind of wanted to stay in. I just wanted the characters to to be there and experience it. And I didn't really want it to end. So I don't know. I felt that the ending got a little anticlimactic as well there, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what other people oh, think. I'm about to disappoint a lot of people tomorrow with that series I've been doing. So I feel it. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I did not well, think of it. Let the readers be the judge. Let the readers be the judge. Absolutely. I think as authors, you're always your worst, your own worst critic anyway. So totally. But uh, before you hit that submit button, you're always like, no, this is just, this isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Uh, well, um, yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. I was thinking about um, King's influences because I, because uh, I teach uh, literary history. Uh, at both at the the university level and the and the the high school level, and we when we talk about horror, uh, we talk about the the line Lovecraft, Matheson, and and King, and I can see a lot of similarities. I mean, it feels like King is kind of like the 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 perfect mix or blend of Lovecraft and Matheson. Matheson, the way he creates characters in the horror part, uh, whereas you have Lovecraft, the ancient evil. Arkham, as we spoke to, but also the inability to craft the proper ending. Um, would you guys agree? You, you shouldn't have brought up Matheson, so I'll go off on a tangent. <laughs> okay. um, favorite writer, hands down. Um, but that's that's a whole other podcast. Um, yeah, but... yeah I, I, I do agree with that, though. Um, he he kind of keeps the cosmic horror as from Lovecraft as well as the more grounded approach that Matheson had, which is nice. Um, and I think it made it a lot easier setting everything around the Dark Tower because you can have all these infinite possibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, love, and the love, I like, I like the, the Lovecraft portion, which he brings in is like, you know, most of the, the a lot of the real terror is, is what's, what's not written versus what's written. Like what, what, uh, what you're creating in your own mind and, um, and scaring yourself, you know, like uh, oh. trying to figure out where yeah. where it is actually coming from. Like in uh, The Jaunt, um, the short story, you know, whenever he did the spoilers for anybody who hasn't read it, obviously, but um, whenever his son comes out of The Jaunt at the end and just says, you know, oh, yeah. I saw eternity in there. Right, right. They, we're just like, oh my God, what? happened in right, there. It doesn't explain anything. That's on Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're just like, what could have happened in there to drive this child insane? Well, it sounds like we're gonna we're going to need to have a Tim uh, or a Richard Madison. I was gonna say Tim Madison a Richard Madison um podcast as well, round table as well. I'll be all over that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um so uh, you guys um, if we're going to look a little bit, what are your some of your favorite and outstanding stories that you've um, read by by King? I think I'll let you guys handle this one. As I'm not a big, I'm quickly realizing that I'm not as big of a King connoisseur as as the three of you gentlemen. But Ross, what have you? What are you, some memorable moments from Stephen King books or scariest moments? And one of what are your like 
Mount Rushmore of Stephen King works? Oh man. Um, so I've I've actually found I've been rereading a lot of King in the past couple of years, um, just trying to you know pick up on stuff that I read as I was younger and see if it's kind of changed for me since then. Um, and in the past couple of years, I've had two children, uh, and some of his horror is way, way more terrifying after you've had kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, like reading it and hearing uh, the the one image that I can never get out of my mind in it is whenever they talk about finding the toddler with his head crushed into the toilet like he had mm-hmm. been pulled in. And yeah. I, I like now I can only think about my own kids whenever I read that. I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> um, and I think he had young kids at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I think he did, and I think that's where he got a lot of that from too. It's like you know the the most terrifying thing as a parent is losing your own children, um, and it's the same thing with Salem's Lot. Whenever the it's talking about the couple that um, has like the the one year old kid, and he just kind of goes limp one day and then comes back for his parents. Um, it, it's, it's insane. Uh, as far as that though, like I, I think my big ones are, are his short stories are the ones that I'm drawn to most. Uh, like I said, the giant um, survivor type is a, one of the most like grounded shorts I've ever read from him and it's also one of the most terrifying because it's this dude that is so driven to desperation that he just starts eating his own limbs um and you're reading it as journal entries so it's just like oh this is insane and you actually like you kind of feel the hunger as you're reading it Um, grab a steak and keep reading oh lady fingers (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, that and then uh, and the Bachman books. Those are, those are the other ones that are pretty high up on my list. Uh, uh, the Running Man and the Long Walk, um, just because they were kind of a, a different direction for him at the time. Um, they got a lot more into social commentary, and they they did very well for what they set out to do. No, I agree. I must. I say. I must say. I do. I do really enjoy the Bachman books just because of that social commentary and i'm not saying that art has to always comment on um society although i do believe that art always does no matter how if how much you even try to avoid it it does but i think i i, I do enjoy this even if and the running man the movie with arnold schwarzenegger was a classic when i was a kid so just that in <laughs> itself <laughs> has absolutely nothing to do with the book yeah, but I it's, know. it's still enjoyable in its own right and, and it does have um, social commentary i think that is more appropriate today than it was when it was produced yeah that, that's the scary thing <laughs> um yeah that that is the i feel like the the bachman books are kind of the pinnacle of all of it for me mm-hmm. uh drew do you have what is, what does it look like for you i mean what are your most memorable um, stephen king I must. I'm. I think I'm a real sucker for his sort of heyday of mid to late seventies and eighties work. I just think it's, it's um, clearly he was tapping into something. Um, a lot of alcohol, obviously, but (laughs) you know, uh, it probably is my number one only because of what I mentioned earlier about how influential it was. Um, but I really love The Shining. 
Um, I love the movie too. The movie is almost something that I don't even view as a horror film. It's just something that I'll put on in any mood because it I feels oddly easy for me to consume. Um, Pet Cemetery, I think, is one again that like the ending I actually thought was great, and there wasn't a whole lot of fluff it, in terms of storytelling. Like I think that was a really well, you know, maybe more contemporary. I guess you could say. Uh, I'm a sucker for Cujo. I just you know. Again, it was in that zone of when he was really ripping off kind of a those those really good classic ones, and um, I think Cujo's the yeah. one where he says he can't even remember writing it, and he wishes oh, yeah. he could because he really <laughs> loves it. <laughs> That's, he yep. did say that exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a comment on well, the the Shining and. And I think you and I talk, talked about this. We spoke about the Shining Everett movie and Shining, the miniseries that came with uh, one of the guys from, from the Wings uh, TV show, the sitcom. Um, no, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. There are things in that mo- the, in the miniseries that, I mean, obviously aren't in the, the Kubrick ver- uh, movie. I mean, were there things that, do they complement each other at all, do you think? Or are they just like completely... Well, Oh, I think, I, yeah, I think Stephen King pushed for that miniseries because he was so upset with the movie. And one, one of the things he was so upset with was the casting of Jack Nicholson, which made it seem like, oh, this guy is just crazy. And really, he wanted it to be about alcoholism, writer's block, and frankly, what the book was about. And he went with this sort of, I forget who, I forget that actor's name, but I can see his happy little face. Yeah. But he wanted to go with like kind of a more milk toast type of guy. Um, and I think that was a deliberate choice by King to sort of tell it on the screen the way he wanted it to be told from what I've yeah. read about it. I think you, you kind of need to view the movie and the book of the shining as two separate totally. stories. Um, so I mean the, the movie is more of like, you know, this is how everything can go wrong and somebody can turn on their family. And the book is, is a lot more of like a redemption story. Has a completely uh, different ending too. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's it's a lot, a lot more of like you know, uh, I think it was King channeling a lot of how he felt about um, you know how he was raising his kids as well as balancing yeah. his drug habits. That's a great point. Does totally does the doctor has any of you seen have you ever seen the Doctor Sleep movie? Not yet. No. no. Oh. Because then I was going to wonder, I was kind of like, what does that tie into the miniseries, the book, or the the Kubrick movies? But I mean, obviously, none of us has seen it, so I don't, it's no, not a point. One thing that was interesting that I just want to comment on, Ross, was that the whole thing about having kids and how it's scarier now than it was before, um, you know, when you're reading King or whatever. Because I saw Pet Cemetery when I, I was probably in my teens when I saw Pet Cemetery. Uh, and then I just like last year I saw the new Pet Cemetery, and it bothered me a lot more. Even though I found that the pet, new Pet Cemetery, the remake, isn't as good, absolutely not. Um, but it did creep me out more, and it's because I have two kids now. It must be the reason, and it's that's just inter- interesting, which made me not want to go back and watch the original Pet Cemetery or even Pet Cemetery yeah. Two. Yeah, you, you kind of, you know, once you have kids, you kind of start inserting yourself into the parents' shoes in the story. Um, and I, 
the the worst example that I have is I my daughter was I think three months old um, and I watched Hereditary mm-hmm. and uh, if if you've seen Hereditary I'm I'm sure That's you know one. the I'm sure you know the scene um, where you know she goes down to the car and finds what happened and I'm just like sitting on my couch having a complete existential crisis <laughs> i did not see that coming by the way yeah no no i don't i don't think she did either <laughs> oh man oh, i haven't yeah. seen it yet <laughs> well yeah let's not ruin it you have to see it yeah, yeah. okay no it's, yeah it's uh, i think it's any, yeah. anything really if you've been in a car accident if you've uh, known anybody who has had head trauma or you're died from head trauma or anyway stuff like that i think those things just sit with you more and uh, mm-hmm. most of us most people do end up having kids um so that'll always be a go-to i think but when kids are are in harm uh darius what are your what is your mount rushmore look like sure well uh as you're saying about kids no kids for me so uh i have kind of a different perspective here um but i do i have a back my background's in history i have a bachelor's degree in history Mm -hmm. um and i'm i'm really attracted to uh folklore mythology um you know uh how the ancient world was so um relating to king my my mount rushmore my top four um would be the stand pet cemetery and the shining which all you know obviously have more of the supernatural elements but um the fourth would be misery, um, and yeah, that cool. one, man, sitting there like you can just put yourself sitting in that bed, and and it's almost like that character is more terrifying than anything supernatural could ever be. Like when she when he when uh, when she smashes the legs, man, like you can almost feel that in your mm-hmm. <laughs> your own legs getting smashed when you're reading that. Mm. Um, but my my we were kind of talking earlier about our favorite scene of all time, and for me that's got to be um, that's got to be Larry walking through the tunnel in the stand, walking through the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, you know, you can smell the rotting flesh. Like I challenge yeah. I, I challenge any one of you to to uh, turn off all the lights in your house. Well, read that chapter first. <laughs> turn off all the lights in your house, right? Try to I'll make your way from your bed. Try to make your wait. way from your bed till your front door, and tell me you don't feel hands. Uh, jumping out and grabbing at your ankles when you're walking it's just so visceral you know like you can smell it you can taste it you're there man you're there when you're reading that and that that to me is just the epitome of 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 literature you know like say what you want about uh these great literary stylists but man if if he can put you in that moment and make you live it you know it's so cinematic just sitting there uh at just through re- whoever said that earlier about being able to just get these feelings just from words on a page is just it's a special kind of magic for me mm. so, yeah, and uh, I, I know we're all writers and he um his like writing style like i when i'm reading and thinking about my writing i pay a lot of attention for better or worse to how words look on a page and one of my like favorite authors is cormac mccarthy because he has no punctuation no quotation marks it's all just words and periods and i yeah for some reason, love that he, King is like the opposite, and right. he's got all these like quotation marks and italicized and bold and parentheses and and I when I like, becoming an author, he's he's the sort of guy that when I was reading him, I was like, oh, I can do that, but only I, I can't do that. But he makes it look easy. He makes it like his style is so conversational and open and loose and it breathes yeah easy to read and the short little chapters yeah you know or like sections and 
I find myself, you know, trying to talk myself into that being just as powerful literary, you know, art versus like a Cormac McCarthy who just writes in a totally different way. Yeah. Um, but it's hard because it feels like he's using all these devices that I I am constantly being told as a writer, like, don't do that because it mm. makes you look desperate. You know, like, don't bold something. Don't use too many adjectives. He, like, breaks a lot of the rules that he talks about in on writing, but mm. somehow pulls it off because it just feels really natural. Yeah. And it feels conversational and just, it's, um, he's he's been by far the biggest single influence on me as a writer because of that. Right. No, I get you. Like, uh, don't get me, I love Cormac McCarthy too, but like when I'm reading Cormac McCarthy or like Nabokov or even Hemingway, like it might take uh -huh. me a half hour to read a single page. You know, I'm stopping <laughs> exactly. up, I'm looking up words, I'm, yes. I'm looking up definitions, I'm rereading the same line 30 times, you know, like yes. when I'm reading King, it's just a you straight shot. I can't stop. Yeah. yeah. But like I was telling you guys last night, all of a sudden it's 3 a.m. and you don't, what, what the heck, where did that time go? <laughs> like, I just fall down a hole. It's awesome. It's awesome. I, uh, a, a couple of years ago, I was working in a call center and we had so much downtime between calls. I finished Salem's Lot in an eight hour shift. And <laughs> oh my I, God. Yeah. Um, and it's just that easy to breeze through. And then I picked up, uh, I think it was, um, it was actually Lovecraft. It was a, a Lovecraft uh, compendium. And uh -huh. um, I, I find myself just like staring at the page. <laughs> exactly. Lovecraft's another one. He's tough. He's tough. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I'm different there because I, I really breeze through Lovecraft. Actually, I'm very, uh, I, I love uh, Lovecraft. And sometimes I'll just listen to to audio versions of, um, of Lovecraft's books. If they're if they if they read them really well i mean if they if the, right. the person who's reading them does it in a in a great way uh there is like a reanimator um read by the guy who played uh herbert west reanimator in the movie oh jeffrey Combs. yeah he does it so he does so well mm. and i mean talking about i mean i think that stephen king really lifts this you were talking about the stand uh, walking through the tunnel there, uh, and I think there are a couple of scenes in Reanimator that are very, very similar. Mm. Uh, and it always, it always, after reading it or listening to it, it always makes me look over my shoulder because I believe I hear footsteps <laughs> from some headless uh, <laughs> military man behind me. But uh, I mean, for me, I think the the books of Stephen King that I've read, I think probably Needful Things was the one that stood out the most for me just because of the way how he cra how how he's able to craft so many varied and deep characters in uh, well i mean it's not few pages but if the amount of characters that he has in that book compared to the amount of pages that book is is something that i really aspire to to, yeah. to doing and how they kind of just in the end with a little bit of assistance obviously uh kind of destroy themselves I, I find it strange that, like, I, I think behind the shot, finding needful things is like the most parodied Stephen King story. Mm -hmm. Which is just, <laughs> it, yeah, like it, it's gotten the most like mainstream exposure, which is weird because I I don't recall the movie adaptation being all that like. Hand. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I I find that weird. Yeah, it was with Max von Sydow, right? Uh. uh I think Glenn Campbell yep. was in it too. And I think Max Mosaito played the, the main the, the the owner. 
the shop owner. Yeah, yeah, he was he was Mr. Needful. Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, mm. uh, what do we think about like the recurring themes? We've touched on it, like Derry, Maine. Um, the I mean, King is known for certain things that that are reoccurring. It's like the whole. Um, kind of greasers that uh, I mean are both in it and they're in stand by me um obviously alcoholism is is oftentimes part of it or alcohol consumption and and stuff like that I mean is that because you I mean you can tell even if he, he crafts it in different ways but you you always know what you're going to get in a Stephen King story you know what elements are going to oh, yeah. be there positive or negative um, I mean, I, I think it's positive that you, you always know what you're going to be in for. Um, I mean, you can pick up a Stephen King story, and know there's going to be that, you know, core battle of good versus evil. Um, and it's it goes beyond the main characters. It's, it's a cosmic force. It's, you know, Pennywise and the turtle. Um, right. Uh, and then, you know, you always have that, that theme of, the supernatural creeping into the mundane um, and absolutely just saturating like, you know, a normal town like Derry or Salem's lot can be taken over so easily from the inside by something evil. Uh, um, I think that's like the, the biggest thing that I, I love in his themes um, is just how easily everything can get corrupted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the supernatural invading the world of the mundane is probably my favorite theme of his and again as a writer probably the most influential because that's what that's i guess my favorite genre is is that kind of a thing you know i i think zombies stuff is cool slasher stuff is cool all of it's fine but i love the idea of just normal life and then there's this little tiny thing that seems totally innocuous but over time very slowly and very gradually becomes this thing that nobody can grapple with or understand and and i think king does that really well yeah um one of his other themes that um that, that's that i really enjoy is uh coming to terms with grief um and facing yeah. death you know like mm -hmm. that, that's a constant reoccurring theme and it's it, sometimes yeah. like when i'm reading pet cemetery man he puts things into words about grief that i i feel but i haven't really explain to myself totally. you know, maybe i haven't actually faced them myself and when i hear his characters face that i'm like that's exactly what i'm feeling totally he said it way better than i i could have said that um so it comes and it's also it's really cathartic too you know I, it makes me feel not so alone like it, 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 there's a, millions of people reading this book right now not right now but have read this book and have probably felt these exact process these same emotions and felt these same feelings that i'm feeling right now i mean it kind of mm -hmm. it kind of makes me feel connected to like a larger larger group of people and that's that's extremely attractive to me i uh going back to the bachman books one of the things i i think my favorite one of the bachman books is the long walk um have have any of y'all read that one long time ago uh, I no. had it list. okay um so i i feel like the long walk which is a very short book uh despite the name <laughs> but it's uh it's really <laughs> cool to go back and read it and look at it as a exploration of the stages of grief. Um, because like, you know, they, they start the walk and they're kind of in a, a denial that anything bad's going to happen. Um, then they move into the bargaining once the first few people drop 
and then it's just you know they're they're like we're walking towards our death but we're gonna go as far as we can with it mm-hmm. um and, and it's just this fantastic character study of the one main character just walking towards his death and coming to terms with it as he does um and even then doing it as like an act of rebellion it's almost like an existentialism type uh, yeah yeah it's it's it gets really existential um it's just a fantastic book yeah it sounds Um, great i think yeah I, i would definitely recommend that to anybody that can't get a hold of it it's a lot a lot more um shirley jackson-esque i yeah. think uh, <laughs> more sure. more than more than lovecraft or i mean matheson i think is is definitely in there but i mean i think it reminded mm-hmm. me of almost like the lottery by by jackson yeah mm. uh it's got heavy lottery inspiration mm. um and, and like you said definitely there's there's a lot of like twilight zone era matheson in there mm. too um I, I feel like whenever it was written, it could have been, it would have fit right in as an original Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. yeah I'm sold. That's the next one on my list. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so actually we're, 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 um, we're going on, uh, on our, our full hour here shortly, but what I was, what I would like to end really with here is kind of talking about maybe Stephen King's, well, I said, as I said, in the beginning, we're not going to knock him off a pedestal or anything like that. But I'm thinking about maybe like Stephen King's relevance today. Is he still because, I mean, when I grew up and I think you, you all have the same experiences as I have. Like uh, I, was, I was born in the late 70s, so I was young in the 80s, which was a big time for, for Stephen King. And then the 90s as well. Uh together with, and I spoke to A.S. Lowe about this when, uh, on a podcast that's coming out here uh, tomorrow, about like people like Dean Koontz and John Saul, who in the 90s and, and early 2000s were very relevant and, and a lot of people read them, but today are, I don't know, I don't hear anybody ever talk about Dean Koontz, and it's evident with that nobody wants to talk about him in the round table. Um, and and John Saul, uh, nobody talks about these guys. Um, but Stephen King is still, I don't know if Stephen King is talked about by a younger generation. Is Stephen King still relevant? Will he still be relevant co- going forward? Or what do you guys think? Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm not really sure of everybody's age in here. Um, I'm in my mid-20s. I was born in the 90s. Um, I, from what I've seen, it, it's still you know, keeping that relevance. And I think with this new wave of uh, adaptations too, you know, in the, in just the past 10 years, we've gotten like what the pet cemetery remake, Dr. Sleep, mm. uh, uh, it, um, Gerald's game, uh, castle rock, uh, is a big one. That's just taking yeah, inspiration right. from all the stories. Um, but I think it's going to keep a lot of that, influence going for a long time uh, there's always going to be these stories and a lot of the themes in them are timeless so you can as showed with it you can keep updating them for a modern audience so that they're not you know in this period of 70 years ago um i, I think that's the big thing is it keeps that timelessness uh, it keeps that relevance so it can always be updated and kept for a uh, modern day so it can continually be read rebooted, retooled, right. um, it's always going to be there. 
think that's like his one of the criticisms you hear about him in regards to relevance is always, oh, he's stuck in the 50s to the 70s. You know, it's always stuck in that time period. But for me, I would say, like, what is relevance? To me, relevance is two things influence on current generation of writers and adaptations. Right. And I think if you, I mean, we're all here talking about him right now. Like, we're all writers. I know that he's influenced me greatly. If, I think if, and across genres, if you look at the influence of any modern writers, you know, um, are, are around our age, I think in just about any genre, you're going to see Stephen King listed right up there as one of the, the top influences. So even if it's not, maybe even if uh, a younger generation isn't reading King directly, uh, the authors that they are reading have been so uh, influenced by King that I don't think it's possible to say that uh, he doesn't have a relevance on, on the culture today. And then, like you were saying, the adaptations, holy cow, how many, how many multitude of them are there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm a little older than you guys. I'm in my mid-30s, but... I, 35 I feel... as well, so... Oh, okay, great, good. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a child. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... um yeah, I, I can't think of another genre in anything in which there's one name that just seems to be synonymous with that genre in at least the American zeitgeist, the way, maybe with the exception of Alfred Hitchcock, who's even older than King, mm. is with horror. I mean, it's it's his, I mean, in, in some ways, I feel like everybody, Dean Koontz, every, like Clive Barker, everybody's just head and shoulders below him in terms of the permeation into the American zeitgeist. Mm. And I don't know that that's a bad thing or a good thing or whatever, but I certainly think it means his work isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And the criticisms about him being kind of old school, I I only see that, you know, I, I feel like I see it sometimes in the way he writes dialogue. It's like, Oh yeah, everybody's friendly and everybody's, you know, but, I don't think it's a big enough problem because the things that he's talking about, like you guys were saying, grief and alcoholism and parental issues, like these are these are things that are only going to get worse. <laughs> perennial, perennial, eternal human issues. That we're going to have to continue to deal with. And so, yeah, I, I don't think he's going anywhere. At least I hope not. No, um, I think the only the only danger that I see, and I spoke to to um, A.S. Lowe about this yesterday too, because as I said, every time I have a podcast, somebody's always bringing up Stephen King. So I mean, to to your guys' point, there's um, R.L. Stein and Stephen King are the two main um, mm-hmm. inspirational mm-hmm. points. Um, but the one thing I was is a uh, I mean afraid of is that. There's no self-editing. I mean, Stephen King has come to a point now, and I think in the end that's where Dean Koontz ended up too, where they've made so much money that nobody can tell them no anymore. You know, nobody can edit their stuff and say, you know, and say like, Stephen, I don't think that this works. I mean, I think Dr. Sleep was, the ink wasn't even wet on the print of Dr. Sleep until when the movie adaptation came out, basically. So everybody's jumping on Stephen King, and I think that might be a danger. That just like so much comes out and so much is accepted and so so many people just read the book because of the name Stephen King uh, instead of of the quality of the work. But I'm not saying that that has. I mean, he'd still be a big name and he'd still definitely be relevant. But I just think that that's always a danger, somehow, somewhere. That's like with uh, I, speaking of the ink not being wet on the page, The Outsider. Um, it, the book came out in what a twenty eighteen. Mm. And here we are with a 
whole HBO series that just yep. finished its first season. <laughs> so, which is crazy, just that it's going to be serial. Is it? Mm-hmm. If it even is, and mm-hmm. I mean, I guess he's alluded to more Holly Gibney books, but that ending was wildly different. So, yeah, I almost wonder. The film stuff does worry me a little bit, only because I just don't feel like they are. It, it I don't know. Pet Cemetery back in the '80s or whenever that was, The Shining, but that was a completely different movie. It's. It seems like it's maybe Carrie is the best example of oh. being able to translate him into film, but it doesn't really happen that well often. Maybe Misery mm-hmm. is another one, but Misery is a good, what, good example. Yeah, um, I think Misery. I, honestly, I think Misery succeeded mostly off of Kathy Bates. Kathy Bates mm-hmm. for sure. Because I and I don't know if you guys watched Castle Rock uh, yeah. season two yet, but um, Lizzie Kaplan as. Um, yeah, that same well. character is fantastic. Um, I just worry about that a little bit, only because it kind of just feels like, frankly, a cash grab. And I don't, I'm not judging mm-hmm. him. Like, do what you have to do, whatever you want to do. But I just hope that the literary work doesn't get lost, because in my mind, there's just, it's just way, it's elite work, and the film stuff is kind of mediocre. Mm. No, I, and I think but as writers, we can all. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Go. Go. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, as writers, uh, we can only dream to have that be our biggest problem. Oh, my God. <laughs> if, that, if that's your problem, then you're, yeah. you're doing all right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I just wanted to say comment, too, because uh, obviously I'm the old fart here. I've uh, passed 40. Um, but I remember it was a big deal. When a Stephen King movie came out, it was a big mm-hmm. deal. Uh, because a lot of people had read the books and everybody was like, but it's somewhere around the time of, I think, Needful Things, actually. Um, so many bo- uh, books were being turned into movies that, it, that everything kind of got lost in the in the shuffle. And some of them were, just like you said, Needful Thing, w- w- it was panned by by critics and the audience. And, and then you had like um, uh, Red Rose, I think. Oh. Uh, oh yeah, that kind of came and went, and and even like the stand came and went. Really, I mean, I think I al- almost like actually happened uh, upon it being on TV. I w- I wonder. I I mean, because those were those were TV miniseries. I believe they didn't actually have like a wide theater release. Um, in fact, I yeah. I'm I mean, I know the stand was a miniseries for sure. It was only on. T- yeah, I'm trying to remember, like in the '90s, what big like Stephen King adaptations there were that actually came out in theaters. Because I feel like there was a, it kind of dried up there for a while. I mean, there was the Shawshank Redemption, mm. obviously, but I I know a lot of people didn't even realize that was King. No, um, it's like Stand by Me. Nobody really Hearts realized. That. What was it? Well, wasn't Hearts and Atlantis? Wasn't that a, a Stephen King? Yeah, yeah. And Pupil. Wasn't that one too? Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, and then I, you know, whenever they first announced that they were making it into a big two-part movie, uh, I, the hype was there. Mm. Like, I saw a ton of people. Yeah. And. I mean, it may be mostly based off nostalgia for the you know old Tim Curry miniseries, but. I, I think it's still, you know, got its its relevance and its fan base even outside of, you know, horror fans to this day. 
Yeah, the only thing I can comment on on it, the t- the the new movies, is that you know, I, as I have, I teach high school. Um, most of them don't even they, they don't even know who Stephen King is. They basically just know it, and and that that's kind of like it's a horror movie in a lot long line of other horror movies that have come out lately, like The Conjuring or. You know, all those movies, Insidious, for them it's just another horror movie that happens to have a scary clown that came during the hype, the re-hype of scary clowns. <laughs> so. The great clown oh, wasn't there that, that whole, uh, the, the whole clown uh, epidemic thing where the, the yeah. creepy clowns were going, wasn't that happening like right before it came out and yeah. people were wondering if it was actually a viral marketing campaign mm-hmm. for it? <laughs> Well, Very clowning of 2016. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can actually, I would uh, suggest that you read uh, Benjamin Radford, uh, who is a uh, folklorist. He's written a book about clowns in popular culture, and he shows, um, and this actually came out long before 2016, that uh, clown epidemics happen uh, with a certain frequency. It just, it keeps. Did you say the... clown epidemic? Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly. Clown epidemics. They come in waves. Yes, they oh come in God. waves. But uh, nope. that curve has flattened. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Um, I, so I'm curious, are we going to go through this entire podcast without talking about King's like crowning achievement no. of the one movie that he wrote and directed? <laughs> no. Does, it involve, say, trucks? Does it involve living trucks? Shawshank Redemption. Uh, no, no, we're going to talk about the maximum overdrive. <laughs> it's, it's a, will, it makes it for a great drinking game. It does, and I mean, King has his little cameo right at the beginning. Just, honey, this ATM just called me an asshole. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good one. Well, uh, we actually have to wrap it up. It sounds like we could talk about this forever, and from our messenger group, I, it's evident that uh, you guys have a lot of opinions and a lot of things to say about Stephen King. But Christopher, can can we throw in a quick uh, book plug? Is that okay before we go here? That was the next thing I was going oh, okay. to ask. Sorry, so, don't mean to step on your toes. Go ahead. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, Darius, do you have uh, anything you would like to plug before we head off? Well, now that you mention it, <laughs> yeah, I'm... I'm Darius Pilgrim, my, my first book is The Smiling Ones on Space Station Mirror, and you can find it on Amazon right now. Mm-hmm. Is there any way, if one is interested in more of your uh, uh, wit and, and insight, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, Darius Pilgrim is also my Facebook page, um, and I, I hang around No Sleep uh, pretty often. Darius Pilgrim is my, my, my uh, Reddit username as well, so if you go there, you'll see all my stories listed. Great. Ross, what uh, what do you have to plug in? Where can we find you on the internet? Um, so I, I do have a book of short stories that's been out for a few months now. Um, it's called Panic Attacks. It's uh, available on Amazon. Um, I also am currently working on turning one of my original No Sleep stories into a short film. Hmm? Um, so that is currently going on. Uh, I actually... I have an Indiegogo fundraiser going for it that has two days left as of this recording. So <laughs> okay. um, I, I don't know when you're putting this out, but uh, you know, if, if anybody wants to check it out, I may extend it uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to find me, I'm, I'm active on no sleep. 
by a post under googly eyes 93 um and i also am a lot more active on twitter than i am anything else and that's going to be googly eyes 1993 um and i have a blog uh it's called the horror store it's um uh, if you just you know do a google search for the horror store it's going to be the first um result and i post essays articles um stories you know whatever comes to mind Excellent. Drew, what have you got going on? Um, I, I have been really churning on my, um, finishing my novel, my first novel that I'm trying to get out, Mm hmm hopefully in a few months. Um, so I haven't really been doing anything in terms of writing short stories or putting things out. Um, so you guys should buy The Smiling Ones on Space Station Mirror by Darius Pilgrim and Panic Attacks You are by the Ross best. Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's like Christmas. yes. But you could you could also find both <laughs> uh, you and I on uh, at uh, Forgotten Ones drabbles yes. about uh, the mythological gods, forgotten That's a gods, good plug. and also because I were you in Fatal Fairies? I can't remember by. TBD. I um I don't know yet. Um probably. But um yeah, let's plug that one too. Okay, Fatal Fairies uh, coming out as well. Uh, and where can people find you on the, the old internet? Drew Starling DrewStarling.com. That's the official headquarters for all things Drew Starling. Yes. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure talking to you about, uh, and I think this first roundtable uh, has been uh, a success. I hope you feel like you Yes. got everything said that you wanted to be said, even a maximum overdrive in the end. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the invite. Uh, very much appreciate it. This was a wonderful experience, Chris. Yes. Yeah, ditto. And I hope, Same way. I hope you guys return for more um, roundtables. We have a few uh, that you can sign up on. There's Lovecraft. Uh, there's genre fiction. There are several other ones. That you, and probably coming up to a Uh, Matheson one. Uh, you can just go ahead and put my name down for that one. Uh, yes, I will do that. Uh, there's also spaces available to talk about Dean Koontz if anybody's interested. Really pushing that one, <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, thank you guys, and uh, I'll uh, talk to you guys later. huh? <laughs> All right. So thank you, guys. Yeah, take care, guys.